Let's pray together. Gracious Father, when we think of the risen Jesus Christ, the one that John met, and the terror that he felt, Lord, we want to know that Jesus. Lord, when we think of of you walking on the water, we want to know that Jesus. Lord, when we think of the eternal one who created all things, Lord, we want to know that Jesus. We want to know you. You have said that uh, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Father, help us to remember that. As we consider our text today, a familiar story, help us to remember that you are the eternal one. Father, in our day today, it seems so long ago and so impossible that uh, you would walk on water. With us and the way that we live our lives, we don't Think of the dependence that your disciples had upon you. And yet, we are just as needy as they were. Father, I pray that you would cause in each of us to know our need. That you would help each of us to quiet our hearts. Help us to be attentive to your spirit. I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth would be your words for us today. Father, you are a powerful God, and we know that you can speak through men. And so I pray, Lord, not because of me, but because of you and your glory, I pray that you would help the truth be proclaimed today. And I pray that each of us here today, as we listen, that by your Spirit, you would be at work in us. Cause us to have hearts that would believe. Cause us to have ears that would hear. Help us to see, Father, the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we are fickle, Uh, we change day to day, and so, Father, I pray that you, the one who knows us, the searcher of our hearts, that you would meet us here today, that you would quiet our hearts, and that you would cause us to see in glory in that which is most glorious, your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Well, we are looking at a familiar passage, or at least a familiar story, Uh, in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, and let's just read it for us. It's John's account of Jesus walking on the water. And uh, it's one that we find in three out of the four Gospels. Uh, Matthew and Mark also record these events, although each of the Gospel writers includes different details in their telling. And so really, at the onset, you may be thinking, well, this, this story doesn't contain that detail or that detail, And so we need to ask, really, at the onset, is how should we deal with the differences that we find in the text? We're going to get in the text, don't worry, but I want us to ask, how should we deal with those differences? Well, one way that we could deal with them is we could add all of the the details together and kind of put them into one complete story. And as we compile those details from the different Gospels, uh, we could see that then as the, the true, complete account that's reliable. The reality is that they're all Scripture. Each of the accounts is Scripture. Now, certainly from a human perspective, right, it would, be, it would make sense that the different gospel writers might have a slightly different perspective on the events since they are different people. And that they, while that may be true, I think there's actually a better way for us to understand the text before us today and how to deal with those differences. 
The other way that, that we can understand these differences in these accounts is to recognize that the gospel writers were writing with a purpose. They included each of the details that they did, and they excluded details that they did for a reason. The Apostle John explains at the end of his, at the end of his gospel that Jesus did even more signs than he recorded in his gospel. Right, even more signs in the presence of his disciples, which John did not include. But then he says in John 20, 30, and 31, he writes that the ones that he did include, these were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Right? And so that's the purpose that John is always driving at throughout his gospel, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And I hope as we look at the passage today, we will see that play out. If you have your Bibles open, I would encourage you to open to John chapter 6 and really understand where John is coming from and where he's going. We need to review because I'm guessing that you guys don't remember the sermon I preached back in March on the previous verses. I didn't, so no, I, I, I remembered about it. Anyways, so open up to John chapter 6 and we see that in these previous verses, uh, Jesus had fed the crowd of 5,000 people. You may recall that uh, Jesus had gone to the other side of the, of the Sea of Galilee with his disciples to get some time away by themselves. Uh, but large, a large crowd was following Jesus because they had seen how he was healing the sick. And when Jesus sees the crowd, he has compassion on them. And he turns to Philip, one of the disciples, and he asks him, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Remember, there's 5,000 men, which means there's probably more than double that in total. John tells us in verse 6 that Jesus said this to test him because Jesus knew what he was going to do. And so Philip provided a very logical economic response. He said 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. And if you don't know your... Uh, ancient and Near Eastern uh, currency, uh, that would be about eight months worth of wages. And that would only purchase just enough for everyone probably to get a morsel, just to get a few bites of bread. In other words, it was just way too costly. It didn't make sense. But I want us to pause here for a moment because we're going to come back to it. I want you to consider what would have been the right answer to Jesus' question to Philip. Right? Knowing everything that we know about, uh, about this story, right, and uh, everything that we know about the gospel and who Jesus is, I want to ask you, how would you answer that question that Jesus asked Philip? I, I really think it's, it's a question that John, as the gospel writer, wants us to ponder. And I'm not going to answer it right now. So, and maybe I'll answer by the end, we'll see. Uh, but Jesus had the crowd sit down he took the five barley loaves and the two fish. When he'd given thanks, he distributed to all who were served. And so he did with the fish. And then don't miss this detail. He said that they had as much as they wanted. As much as they wanted. They had as much as they desired. So right, this little loaves, two fish, and everyone had as much as they desired. 
The response was significant. John tells us in verse 14 that when the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. In fact, they were about to take him by force to make him king. And that's when John tells us in verse 15 that Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus goes up the mountain by himself. And that too, right, that raises a question. Right? It seems like an odd time for Jesus to make an exit. Right? Just as the crowd was about to make him king, he leaves. But this is the context of our passage that we're looking at this morning. The crowd was in the wrong because they wanted Jesus to be their king, because they wanted Jesus to do for them what they wanted, right? They wanted Jesus to provide for them physically. And certainly Jesus, Jesus could do that. And, and certainly, if they had seen him walking on the water, it would have only increased their determination to make him king. But the reality is that the crowd never sees Jesus walking on the water. In fact, when the crowd uh, does eventually catch up with Jesus and asks him how he even came to the other side, he doesn't tell them. This account that we're looking at today, right, this was only seen by the disciples. And this is an account that is not meant to tell us so much of what Jesus can do, how amazing he is. This is, this, this is an account that is intended to show us who Jesus is. Jesus is the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. Right? He is God incarnate. And for the Christian, he is our loving Savior. So that's what we'll be looking at today. The ways that, in which our loving Savior interacts and relates to his children. So there's four ways that we'll look at this morning. So Jesus is the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. And as our loving Savior first thing we see that Jesus does is he sends us. He sends us. Well, let's take a look again at our passage. Verse 6, uh, I'm sorry, John 6, uh, starting with verse 16, we read, When evening came, the disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Right, we just said that, that John had indicated Jesus had gone up to the mountain by himself, and now we find the disciples heading out across the Sea of Galilee without him. Another question right, that gets raised immediately is, why didn't the disciples wait for Jesus? Right? Why would they leave without him? But don't forget the previous verses. Right? This, if we just study this passage like, and don't think about anything around it, we may be tempted to, to think of this as like, you know, some leisurely uh, sail out on a pristine lake, nice and calm night. But it isn't like that at all, right? Remember that there are over 5,000 men, maybe 10,000 people pressing in who want to make Jesus their king. And so it's not difficult to imagine uh, the enthusiasm of the crowd and the, the chaos that would have ensued and in the midst of that, Jesus sent his disciples off into a boat while he dealt with the crowds before heading up to the mountain. And that's a detail that we actually get, uh, we find in Matthew's account, Matthew 14, where he tells us that Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. 
while he was dismissing the crowds. And that word that, that he uses there, uh, that word made, it could also be translated as compelled or as in like compelled by force or persuasion. Right? But one commentator pointed out that, uh, that the picture that Scripture paints for us is of the disciples who did not want to get out. Uh, who, I'm sorry, who did not want to get to the other side, but, but were persuaded or even compelled by our Lord. He goes on to say that, he, you know, you can imagine Jesus putting them out in the boat and, and him giving a shove to the twelve to send them in the right direction. So he deliberately sent them out onto the lake. Imagine, right, the jumble of thoughts and emotions that would have been going through uh, your mind, right, if you were one of those disciples, Right? There may have been some sense of relief to get away from all of these people, right? the press of the crowd, and to be out under the open water. Right? Some of the disciples were experienced fishermen, right? and, and they may have been much more comfortable dealing with the uncertainties of the sea than with the unpredictable nature of so many people. But as the boat pushed out, I can't help but also think that some of them may have wondered if they, if they shouldn't really be leaving Jesus behind. Right? How is he going to catch up with them? Right? What if the crowd gets out of hand? Right? Jesus can handle a crowd, but it's a lot of people. We don't, we don't know anything of what the disciples were thinking or feeling. But what we do know is that they were following Jesus' instructions. And then the text tells us that at some point in the evening, the sea became rough and, became a, strong, and a strong wind was blowing. This is much more than just choppy water. If you've ever been out sailing or boating uh, anywhere in Wisconsin, you know maybe what some choppy water looks like. This is, this is totally different. This last week I learned that the Sea of Galilee lies 600 feet below sea level. And so cool air would come in, uh, from the, still does come in from the southeastern tablelands and can rush in to displace the warm, moist air that's over the lake, right, turning up the water uh, in a violent squall. Right, this is a big storm. There they were, miles from shore, in the middle of the storm, heading into the wind. Right? It says that they were rowing into the wind. Like, if these guys had had any chance of sailing, they would have done that. But, but they're beyond that at this point. They were heading into the wind, as Matthew describes it. Their boat was being beaten by the waves. What we have is an image of the disciples being totally overwhelmed by the storm. Pastor Kent Hughes said that there are two ways to get into a storm. One is to flee God's will, like Jonah did. Right? A great wind or a great storm blew up, and Jonah ended up in, in the belly of a fish. But that's different than the situation that the disciples find themselves in. They were in the midst of a storm because they were obedient to God. He says that those who decide to follow Christ and give up their allegiances will face contrary winds. There's no doubt about it. As Christians, we are not promised an easy life. Consider Paul's words of encouragement to Timothy. 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 14. He says, You, Timothy... You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from all of them the Lord rescued me. 
Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so it's to be expected. If you are experiencing what feels like a storm of opposition or difficulty or disappointment or discouragement as you seek to live in obedience to the Lord, I want to encourage you to remember that the same Lord who saved you is the same Lord who called you by name is the same one who simultaneously sends you into the storm and carries you through it. Think of the words of the song, In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought, the fiercest storm. So Jesus sends us sometimes into the midst of a storm. But if we're in obedience, that's where he wants us. Right? And, and as the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords, our loving Savior, Jesus, not only sends us sometimes into the midst of a storm, but then the second point is that, that he sees us. He sends us and he sees us. Right? Jesus was not blind to the struggles that these disciples were facing out in the boat. Verse 19 says that when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. Just think for a moment, right? Have you ever seen a painting of Jesus walking on the water? Like, what did it look like? I've thought about a couple different ones that I've seen over the years, and Jesus is usually glowing, Right? And there might be like wind everywhere, but like somehow he has this like force field as he's walking out on the water. I don't think that's what it was like. Right? The text doesn't indicate that that was what it was like. You see, the reason why Jesus could fully understand the intensity of the storm and the forces of the wind that his disciples were up against is because Jesus experienced it himself. Right? It's true that, yeah, it's true. He was walking on top of the water instead of being inside of a boat, but as Jesus walked those, think about it, three or four miles, the wind blew with the same level of intensity against him as it did against his disciples. Right? What an amazing picture of the incarnate Christ, of Jesus coming down and being flesh. Right? The scriptures tell us that Jesus was made like us in every way. Hebrews 2 tells us that Jesus uh, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And then we read in Hebrews 4.15, Right? We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Often when we face temptation, right, think about it, it's like a strong wind blowing at us. And when we give in to temptation, it's just like laying down. Right? We don't feel the temptation anymore because we've given in to the sin. But Jesus, on the other hand, was without sin. He continued to face the wind. He never gave up. He never gave in to sin. It's amazing to ponder that Jesus has walked the same path of humanity that we walk. That he has faced the same temptations that we face. 
and that every kind of suffering that we experience, he understands. Right? I think if we better understood the depth of the Lord's mercy and the extent that he, he went to uh, to buy us reconciliation, we would be much more willing to cry out to him for help because we would know that he knows us. He knows our frame. We'd be more willing to run to him for security and to fearlessly go wherever he sends us because we wouldn't fear any loss. Looking back at our text, verse 19, tells us that when the disciples had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were as less, ex- I thought did a great job. They were, they were terrified. They were frightened, right? And can you blame them? Right? Imagine, it's the middle of the night, and you're out in a boat, and it's a storm, right? and, and you're in the middle of a huge lake, and you see a figure walking toward you. Right? I, I don't know if the moon was full. I'm not sure. Uh, I don't know if the clouds covered the sky, or if they saw him like with lightning in the background. We're not told. They're in a boat, right? There's nowhere to escape. I, I thought about four, three or four different stories to illustrate this, but I didn't want to give the kids nightmares. So, I'm sure you can think of your own. Talk to me afterward. There's one in particular. Anyway, at any rate, the disciples um, were not expecting Jesus to come to them. Not at that, not there, right? Not then. And I think, I think, I think we suffer from the same problem. Sadly, in our broken and sinful state, we don't expect Jesus to come to us and help us. What do we do? We look to ourselves and to those around us for help. And sometimes we just run away from Jesus because we don't recognize his mercy at work in our lives. Right? It's rude. It's disrespectful, the way that we treat the Lord. I mean, how quickly would you lose patience if someone in your life were to treat you the way that you treat God. Think about it. Right? We turn our back on him. We don't think about him. We don't take the time to know him. But Jesus, our loving Savior, is rich in mercy. And he shows us a lot of patience and understanding. He knows our weakness. He knows our frame. He knows, he knows the temptations that we face. And I think it's for that reason that our loving Savior Jesus comforts us with himself. And that's the third point, is that he comforts us with himself. So how does Jesus respond to their fear? Right? He, he could have been just totally offended. Like, guys, come on, it's me. can't believe you're screaming. You're terrified. What's going on here? But no, that's not what he does. In verse 20, we read that he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. And Jesus, really, he responds just with four words in the original language, right? Four, just four words, right? I am, fear not. I am, fear not. Right? Jesus comforts his disciples and he calms their fears, but first by identifying himself. It is I. It is I. But it's, he's more than just saying, hey guys, it's me. The words he uses are significant. 
When God first revealed himself to Moses and he spoke to him through the, burn, through the burning bush, God told Moses right, that he was going to send him into Egypt to free God's people. And in Exodus 3, we read that Moses said to God, right, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, really? What's his name? What shall I say to them? Right? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. So this seems like a strange name, but that is the name that God used to identify himself to Moses. And that's the same name that Jesus uses, that same phrase that Jesus identifies himself with to his disciples. And in doing so, he clearly connected himself to the Father. He connected himself to God. Jesus is the Son of God, and, and as we'll see further on in the book of John, if the Lord tarries by the time I finish the book of John, that uh, we will see him use the title I Am more and more as the book progresses. Well, he first says, I am, but then the second phrase that Jesus uses is significant as well. He says, fear not. And we've already read a few passages, right, where that phrase is, can be found. God uses the phrase throughout the Old Testament scripture, right? And think about what Les read in, in Isaiah 43. He says, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, fear not. Why? For I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You're mine. And then think about this. Think about those words in light of where Jesus is at that moment. He says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you will not be burned, and the flames will not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Right? Jesus is identifying himself as this Savior. Jesus doesn't, he doesn't scold his disciples for being scared. He doesn't offer them reasons why they shouldn't be scared. Instead, Jesus offers, him com offers them comfort and encouragement that is grounded in who he is. When I think about today, like what, what it's like one of the quickest ways, one of the quickest things that we jump to when we're facing a fear. I think it's that we jump to statistics, right? Statistical probability, right? What's the likelihood that something is going to happen or not? Right? If, if someone's afraid of flying, well, did you know, statistically speaking, it's safer to fly than it is to drive a car. Okay, it's true. If you get a bad lab result, concerning biopsy comes back, right? We listen for the likelihood of whether or not it will be something more serious, it will be something fatal. What are the statistics? What are the odds? But statistics don't offer us any real hope. They're not true comfort. Our only true comfort in this life is found in a loving Savior, Jesus Christ. As believers, we're not our own. Right? We're, we belong both body and soul, both in this life and in the next, right, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So no matter what you're going through, you're not alone. Right? Jesus sees you and he understands what you're going through. If you're a believer, God 
calls you by name. You're his. And if you're a believer, we have passages like uh, Romans 8.34 that remind us that Jesus intercedes for his children, right? Romans 8.34 says, who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. So then Paul goes on, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or, or danger or the sword? As is written, for your sake we're being killed all day long. We're like regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is who Jesus is. His love is faithful. He is faithful. And so as the, as the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus, as our, our loving Savior, he sends us sometimes into storms. He sees us through it all. He comforts, of, comforts us with himself. And then our last point is that he calls us to worship him as our king. He calls us to worship him as our king. Well, what we observe is that, that Jesus transformed their faith, uh, their fear into faith. Right? They were terrified, and yet they respond quite differently when they realize it's Jesus, when they hear his words. Verse 21 tells us that after Jesus spoke, then they were glad to take him into the boat. We've already looked at that word. They were glad. A few of the English translations, if you've got a different version, it may say that they were willing to take him in, into the boat. And I want to talk about that word for just a little bit, right? Because if you think about, well, they're willing to take him in. They had an extra seat, might as well. It's not like he's a hitchhiker. It's more than that. I think it's actually even more than they were glad to take him in. It's like, finally, Jesus, you got here. Can you take over one of these rowing positions? No, it's not that either. Right? It's a word that is, can be translated, as we said, as a want. Right? It's a want, will, choose, desire. It is a wish or a will of purpose or resolve, a wish to do something. That same word is used three times in John chapter 6. Right? That first time was in 6.11. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, and so the fish, as much as they wanted, as much as they desired. This was all you can eat. That's how much they wanted Jesus in the boat. The disciples were more than just willing to take Jesus in the boat. Suddenly it was their, true, their truest desire to do so. Now they, they, We know that they still didn't fully understand, but their eyes were beginning to be open to the fact that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Son of God, and their hearts were moved to worship. In fact, Matthew tells us that outright. He says that those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. As the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus, our loving Savior, intentionally sends us where he wants us to go. Sometimes it is into the midst of adversity, but it will always be for our good. Back to Romans chapter 8, 
familiar verse, Romans 8, 28, reminds us that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus sends us into often adversity to make us more like Jesus, to make us more like himself. So as we walk through the Christian life, we're comforted to know that that he sends us where he wants us to go. And, And in sending us there, it's to make us like Jesus. We're also comforted to know that he sees us, right? He knows us, he intercedes for us, and he loves us enough that he laid down his life so that we might be reconciled to God, right? We have a loving Savior who gives of himself and the promise of grace. And so our only proper response, really, your only proper response would be that of worship. So what is worship? It's not just coming here on Sunday morning. Worship is much more, right? We always worship that which we truly love and adore. Right? What do you get excited about? Right? Is it, it could be God, right? Could be a person, could be a football team or a game, right? There's, we've heard it in this pulpit before, right? One of the biggest worship services in all of Wisconsin happens at a football stadium. People's hands are raised, they're excited, they are worshiping. They're not worshiping God, but they are worshiping. They're giving of themselves, they're, they're excited. We worship what we truly adore. One of the greatest privileges I've had over these last 13 years um, here at River Hills is being able to take a handful of couples through premarital counseling. Right? It's, it's a lot of fun right? to get to know them right, before they're married and, and talk about their lives and their hopes and their dreams than to see them get married. And, um, and one of my goals throughout that time, whether they realize it or not, I don't use these words, but as I, want, I want to help them to understand the difference between love and infatuation. Stick with me here for a second, right? Infatuation is an intense but short-lived passion or uh, an admiration for something or someone. So infatuation, that's... Why is infatuation short-lived? Well, think of it, go back to the, the, the water motif, like the sea, the ocean, right? right? When you're infatuated, the, the tide of emotions are intense, right? That water is coming in, and right, the infatuated person is swimming in these intense emotions. They're up over their head. They're wonderful, right? Somehow the whole world seems different. It's wonderful. It's meaningful. Oh, this is just the best, Right? But then the tide shifts, right? And the water goes out, and they're no longer swimming. They're no longer overcome with these same wonderful emotions. The tide of infatuation has receded, and the reality of life sets in. And everything doesn't seem so perfect anymore. The other person doesn't seem so perfect anymore. Right? All the things that, that you didn't know about that other person... Right, that you assumed you know, knew, because, like, of course, they would agree with me on everything. All of those assumptions that you made about them, they end up not living up to the way you imagined them. Infatuation is intense, but it is short-lived. 
It just dies. In a way, that crowd right, that Jesus fed, the 5,000 that he fed that will follow him around uh, the, the Sea of Galilee and find him once again, that crowd was simply infatuated with Jesus. They thought that he would be the perfect king because they would fill, he would fill their bellies. But soon, we learn in chapter 6 that his teaching became difficult and the crowd started grumbling. We read in John 6, 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. This isn't the 12, but this is the crowd that was following him. They turned back and no longer walked with him. And then in John 6, 67, Jesus turns to the 12. He says, do you want to go away as well? Guess what? It's that same word. Do you want, do you desire, would you be glad to turn away as well? Simon Peter answers him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. See, Peter learned, the disciples learned what it meant to worship Jesus. As our loving Savior, Jesus calls us to worship him, not as a convenience, but as our King. We don't come to Jesus to get what we want. We worship Jesus because he is worthy of our worship. True worship is an overflow of our love and adoration from him, for him. Right? We will do anything he tells us because we know that he is wiser and more loving, more compassionate, more of everything good than we ever will be. Let me say that if you are struggling in your worship of the Lord, you're struggling in your, your life of worship, I want to encourage you to intentionally spend time looking at our loving Savior, right? Gaze upon him, right? Through the Gospels, through the Old Testament, in the Scriptures, be reminded of his great love for us, right? If you are struggling in your worship, if, if it's dry and just feels like a desert, and you're not reading your Bible, there's probably a connection there. Well, there's one more detail that I left out of the story, and that's the last part of verse 21 that said that the, immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, all three Gospels list different endings, right? Different things happened, right, when Jesus comes into the boat, right? Just different, they're different accounts. One, Peter gets out of the boat, right? Peter walking on the water. Do you guys remember that story? Right, that's in one of the Gospels. That's in Matthew. And then in Mark, right, as soon as Jesus steps in the boat, pew, the wind is, is still. And here we see that, that the boat is, is at the land in which they're going. I don't totally know how to reconcile these. They may be all true. Uh, they, they may be true in some sense. I don't think they're false. Right? One commentator said that maybe they were so caught up in worship that they were where they were going before they could even think much more about it. I don't know. Maybe it was instantaneous. It might have been a miracle. If it was a miracle, it certainly related uh, to the psalm that we talked about, or that, that uh, Les read for us. Right? He takes us to 
our desired um, destination. Anyway, our passage this morning, I want to tie up, our passage this morning is not really about what Jesus can do, about how amazing he is for walking on the water. Right, he is. He's over creation. He's the Lord of lords, the King of kings. Right? It's not about what he can do. It's about who Jesus is. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He is the sovereign Lord over all his creation. Jesus did not need that crowd uh, to make him king. Right? They, they simply wanted Jesus to meet their physical needs, as we already said. But I want to leave you with this one last thing. D.A. Carson points out, that the truth of the matter is that Jesus' kingdom is like no other kingdom. Jesus himself knew that the way his kingdom would triumph would not be by beating the enemy in siege warfare, but by dying and rising from the dead. Listen to this. He would not wield the spear and bring judgment, but to receive the spear thrust and bear the judgment. Perhaps Jesus recognized in the mob's enthusiastic but unwelcome detention the same temptation that he confronted in the wilderness with Satan. And so he fled, abandoning the crowd and, according to Mark, sending even his own disciples away back across the lake, perhaps in fear that they too might become contaminated by the crowd's irrepressibly but misguided enthusiasm. I think about the tides coming in and out, right? We have to be careful to keep our eyes upon our Savior. And not just the people around us, not just the crowds around us. But remember, right, that Jesus is the sovereign King of Kings. He's the one that we need to submit to. Not what other people around us say we need to submit to, but Him. We don't always know why Jesus sends us where He does, but we can know that we can trust Him as our loving Savior, to be with us, to watch over us wherever he sends us. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let us worship him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us as your people to go wherever you would send us. Father, to trust in you and your goodness that we would not simply trust in uh, some uh, impersonal God, uh, some impersonal process, but know that Jesus was indeed, he is both God and man, that he did legitimately come uh, to give his life as a ransom so that all who believe would be saved. Help us to trust him because he loves us. We thank you. and ask that you would help us to remember your great love for us, that you not only send us, but that you see us. We thank you for giving us of yourself, and I pray that you would indeed give us hearts of worship. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, that that you would show yourself to them. Lord, what a treasure you are to us, and I pray that our hearts would respond, overflow in worship for you. Where we are dead in our worship, I pray that you would enliven us. Lord, help make Jesus worshiped truly as he ought to be in our hearts, in our lives, in our lips. Ask in Jesus' name, amen.